Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. In recent years, the experts have come under fire. We criticize economists for failing to predict the financial crisis. We criticize public opinion pollsters for inaccurate predictions in 2016 and now 2020. Some of us even rebel against the recommendations of epidemiologists in the middle of the pandemic. Much of this rejection of expertise is irresponsible and ignorant, but there may be a smarter version of it. What if experts can't model reality as well as they'd like to think? and therefore we need to rely more on individual judgments instead. I'll be discussing this question today with Mervyn King. Mervyn is a professor of both economics and law at New York University, and he's the former governor of the Bank of England. He's also the co-author, along with journalist John Kay, of Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making Beyond the Numbers. Mervyn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm going to start by reading just a sentence or two uh, from your book. Um, We are emphasizing the vast range of possibilities that lie in between the world of unlikely events, which can nevertheless be described with the aid of probability distributions, and the world of the unimaginable. This is a world of uncertain futures and unpredictable consequences about which there is necessary speculation and inevitable disagreement, disagreement which often will never be resolved. And it is that world which we mostly encounter. In fact, I would add that we have just encountered that world in a very tangible and uh, important way, which is the election we just had, in which we had uh, polls which seemed to all point to a very large victory by former Vice President Joe Biden, and then models based on those polls which showed. Very certain, I would think, 85 to 90 percent chance uh, of a Joe Biden victory. And indeed, it looks like as we're doing this, that that is likely the case. But it does not feel like those polls and those models were correct. Would that qualify as the kind of radical uncertainty that the book addresses? Yes, the radical uncertainty, as you said in the quote, lies between events that we can very happily use the laws of probability to describe, tossing a coin, events of that sort, events which are repeatable, so we can compute the probabilities, and something that's totally unimaginable. So when it came to the election, the result, there were only two possible outcomes in terms of who would be president, so it was certainly imaginable. But the idea that we could easily attach probabilities to those things, I think, was an illusion. This was a one-off race. Uh, This was not an occasion, an election contest that was going to be repeated. And so the models that people constructed to convey the illusion of probabilities were really uh, attempts to try to express their confidence in their prediction. But it wasn't the same as saying, if this event were repeated so many times, then this is, you know, Biden would win 85 out of 100 elections and Trump only 15. It's not like that. And so probabilities in that context tend to confuse 
rather than help us think about the outcome. Indeed, uh, elections do seem like one-off events, particularly presidential elections. Um, we re- I mean, I, it doesn't seem like a very large sample set uh, to draw upon and look at sort of what happened in the past and use that to inform uh, your current models. But yet, I know I spent a lot of time looking at polls and models, and there's been an increase in the, in the amount of modeling of elections, which attempt to uh, figure out what the polls get right and get wrong. Um, they're very highly featured. Uh, a lot of news organizations spend a lot of time creating their own models. And of course, you have something like 538, which is its own own thing. Is that just a useless endeavor? Well, it may not be totally useless if people want to bet large sums of money on it. But I think what you have to recognize is that it's the models that are driving the prediction rather than the responses given by potential voters. So to map from the direct responses of individuals to the polls into a predictive result requires a great deal of modeling about human behavior. How intense is people's wish to go and vote? Uh, And these things change from election to election. So in, in the UK, we had the very clear example in 2016 of the Brexit referendum when young people did not vote Then when it came to 2017, the modelers informing the pollsters said, ah, we've now learned that young people don't vote very much. So we'll infer from the responses that we can give less weight to young people. Well, that turned out to be wrong in 2017. They did come out and vote. So to use the technical phrase, human behavior is not stationary. It changes from one year to the next, one period to the next. And unless you really understand that, and I think there's no way we can pretend that we can predict that, then the models are bound to make mistakes. And in that sense, what we need to do is to recognize that there is a very wide margin of error around many of these polls predictions. And in that case, they actually may not be terribly illuminating because with such a wide margin of error in truth, that actually that's not giving us the information we'd like to have. We simply will not know who wins until we get to the election day itself. Does it surprise you at all that, uh, that the that betting markets seem to have a much more skeptical view uh, of the election? They seem to have been more accurate. As I, I'm, as I mentioned, may not have mentioned, betting markets were looking for about a 60% chance uh, of a Biden win versus the, the polls and the models, the models again, which said a 90% chance. Is that does the fact that the betting market seem to be more accurate, uh, does that surprise you? Should, we, should, should, should policymakers maybe be relying more on, uh, on, on betting markets or should the media at least be relying more on betting markets when talking about elections than uh, very sophisticated models? So I think we've learned that models, not just in this area, but economic models, and for that matter with COVID-19 epidemiological models, are very bad at predicting the future. So the lesson is not to put too much money relying on the predict on these kind of predictions. You want to keep your options open. Where there's this sort of uncertainty, the big lesson is keep options open and wait until you know the outcome. Uh, I, I think what we realize here is that there's no objective truth to these forecasts or probabilities. They are judgments of people. 
And the very often the probabilities, as I said, reflect not some objective sense of probability, but a degree of confidence on the part of the person making the prediction. And that is likely to be very different when you're just making a prediction, uh, when you're depend in contrast with a situation where people are actually putting sums of money down, quite large sums of money potentially, on the outcome. So that is always one to look at because people are backing their judgment by putting money on the table. But even then, I, I'm not sure that I would want to take decisions which reflected on having to decide on a date in advance of an election on the 3rd of November. I would say, look, let's keep our options open, wait until we've heard the result, and then decide what to do. There are not that many decisions that you're forced to take in advance of the election. Uh, you mentioned uh, Brexit, uh, and um, one of sort of the, I guess the, uh, the uh, the feelings that during that period it was sort of that that the result was the result was a rejection of experts. It was a rejection of false expertise, and you know people draw much the same conclusion from uh, the financial crisis. And we have another election in which the experts seem to have been wrong. And the conclusion again, people will draw perhaps even more strongly is. Uh, experts, they're useless. They're unable to properly measure or predict anything of importance. Uh, we should just tune them out. Uh, I, I assume that's not quite your conclusion that we should just tune out experts and we should disregard their supposed expertise, whether it's in uh, uh, election modeling or economics forecasts or economic advice. Well, I certainly don't want to give up on the use of experts. After all, if you contract a disease, you don't just want to talk to your next door neighbor, you want to talk to a qualified doctor. And if you get into an airplane, you'd hope that the pilot is a qualified pilot, not someone who was given a discounted ticket. So you do need expertise when it comes to making decisions. And you want people to explain and understand what they're doing. But I think there's a very big difference between the use of experts in enabling us to understand what is going on and in terms of making predictions. And I think a good example of that is what's happened in many countries in the West with COVID-19. Experts can tell us about the nature of viruses. They understand about epidemics. They can tell us that epidemics start slowly, which is why it's difficult to track it in the first instance. Then it tends to accelerate and it declines. You may get second or third waves. These insights are very important in thinking about how to tackle an epidemic. But what the epidemiological models are not good at doing is predicting the path of any given epidemic. And we've seen that very clearly since March, where the forecasts that have been made about the number of cases, the number of deaths, have been way off in many cases. And that's partly because the experts disagree about some of the key parameters. But in large part, it's because some of the crucial parameters that determine the spread of an epidemic are about human behavior. And these are not scientific constants that you can measure in experiments and then feed them into the model to make a prediction. They are assumptions that the modelers are making, and those assumptions can very often be wrong, even if they're about the science sometimes, so that the mortality rate from COVID-19, for example, we simply didn't know that in March, and it's not at all clear that we know today what that number is. 
So there are many things about the nature, the phenomenon of COVID-19 that we don't understand. That is not to reject experts, but it's to warn us that you don't rely on experts to give you the answer. So when governments today say, we're just doing what the science tells us to do, that is very foolish because the science doesn't tell us what we must do. It informs the judgments that our political leaders have to make about difficult trade-offs between deaths that may result if we lock down the economy versus deaths from COVID-19. And we simply do not know enough to say that if we take action A, then the number of deaths will be a certain number, whereas if we take a different policy response, we'll have a different number of deaths. We simply don't know that. That's why the judgments are so difficult. And I suspect why too many politicians have taken resort, hidden behind the scientists in saying, we're just doing what the science tells us to do when it can't. And I think what the experts need to do is to be very honest about what they do know, which is a lot more than the rest of us, but also what they do not know. And it's what they do not know, which makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to make good predictions. So is the proper role, whether it's epidemiologists or economists, I think people will view them as sort of forecasting machines, which you say is not how we should view them. Should we then view them more as framers of choices? Is that, is that a better way to, to, to view their role? It's a better way. It's, I, so I think when we're confronted with any situation uh, that's radically uncertain in our sense, the right question to ask is, you know, what is going on here? What was going on in the election that we've just seen? Well, it were two very different visions, two styles of argument. What was going on here? Did we really understand why people had voted for Trump? Did we really understand why people might decide to switch from voting for Trump last time to Biden this time? Those are the questions to ask. And there is no simple scientific facts that give you the answer to those questions. Same is true of COVID-19. What experts can do is to help us understand what may be going on so that we can think more clearly about the question. In COVID-19, it's the scientific uh, insights into how epidemics behave. It's the collection of data. It may also tell us what we need to know more about. So if you want to know what the mortality rate of the virus is, you may need to do large random testing of the population to find out how many people actually have it, even if we can identify the number of people dying from it. You need to know the number of people who got it in the first place to know the mortality rate. And I think it's these this role of helping us to think through a problem, which is important, not the pretense that the expert has the answer. And yet, of course, uh, people continue <laughs> to view uh, experts and uh, economists, which is what I focus uh, on a lot, as people who have the answer. For instance, um, I, I know the Biden campaign was very excited when one well-known economist said, the Biden economic plan will generate 7 million jobs over the next four years versus the Trump economic plan, which will generate a lesser number. I don't remember, maybe it was 4 million jobs or something over the next four years. And they touted that analysis as, aha, that proves our economic plan is better. Now, I would expect politicians to continue to do that sort of thing 
But it seems that you're saying is that voters at least should be very skeptical at those kind of those kinds of claims. They should be deeply skeptical of them. And I think they are skeptical of them. I'll give you the example of the Brexit referendum in the UK, when the Remain side, led by the government, argued that every family would be £4,300 a year worse off if we left the European Union. Now, many of the people I spoke to didn't want me to say how they should vote or to give advice as an expert. They wanted to know where they could find the information. And what they realised when the government made this claim was that the government could not possibly know that. No one knew that. This was a very uncertain step that we were about to take, and no one could possibly predict exactly what the consequences would be. So that when, when one side made a claim with that degree of precision, people said, look, this is just uh, propaganda. They're, they, they're not taking us, the voters, seriously. They're not treating us seriously. And that lost them a lot of support, I think, by making that kind of claim. So I, I think that politicians in the long run lose credibility by making claims and forecasts that are simply not borne out. And it is much better for a leader to be able to say to people, look, none of us know the answer to this question. I don't know the answer, and I don't think anyone else does. But let's think our way through the problem. This is what, given our information today, seems the most sensible course to take. But as information comes in, we may have to change it. What you don't want to do is to say, this is the answer. I know it's absolutely right. And then three weeks later, say, well, actually, I've changed my mind. But this now really is the right answer. Only three weeks later to change again. And that is what has happened in many countries with COVID-19. A much more humble approach, I think, would actually benefit politicians because people's, credibility, people's belief in their credibility responds to honesty and openness and not to a belief in false predictions. What is the role then of sort of experienced based intuition uh, and judgment? Some people would say, you know, sort of what, what is your, at some point you've, you've heard the analysis, you've seen, you've heard the forecast, you've seen the cost benefit analysis and it's time to make a decision. And how do you make that? How do you make that leap? Do you sort of go? I mean, President uh, President Bush used to say that he had a great gut. You know, he, he knew how to go with his gut. Uh, is there something to that? At some point, should well, you something, listen, listen to that voice? To, there's something to that, but I think it's actually important not just to rely on gut instinct. One of the role of experts is not to say this is the answer, but to say to the polit political leader. Look, there are three or four numbers here that really matter. Suppose you're thinking about um, the cost-benefit analysis of a new road or airport or railway line. Uh, typically, what happens is the experts go away, do a lot of calculations and come back with one number. You don't want that. You want the, people, the experts to say to you, look, there are three numbers that probably really matter here because this is what's going to drive the outcome. You really need to have a decent handle on the cost of the project and you need to have some handle on what it is you think this project is going to achieve. Um, keep it simple, don't complicate it, and don't try and wrap up the answer in terms of something that only a computer can calculate. And so in a way it's simplifying the problem and where experience comes in 
is that experience gives you a strong feel for what things you should be suspicious of when people produce calculations and forecasts and what things you think you can rely on. But you should always ask yourself the question, what is going on here? And I think the, the key to this in terms of making decisions is if you've got a group of people around you, you've got a proposed decision coming out, you really do want another team of people to work for you who will dissect that proposed decision and say, look, these are the potential weaknesses in the argument and actually challenge the decision before you take it. Challenge the narrative that's going into the decision. That's really very important. But the last thing you want to do is to outsource the decision to a group of so-called experts who've got a model and they make assumptions about all kinds of things that you're not aware of and turn the handle, get a number and come back and say, this is what you must do. That is not a helpful way to make a decision. But it's a, it is a question of creating a, a narrative where experience really does matter, but getting it challenged by other people. So just relying on one's own gut instinct can be dangerous. I can certainly imagine, however, that given the growing sort of sophistication of artificial intelligence and these machine learning programs, that policymakers looking for sort of uh, both maybe certainty and cover for their decisions may actually end up relying more in the future on models that under any circumstance are difficult to understand, even more so if you're a policymaker whose background is the law rather than computer science, uh, and that we'll actually see uh, uh, these AI programs take a larger role in how we make decisions. I mean, certainly you mentioned, and you know, sometimes they do quite well. You mentioned the uh, the, the forecasting of uh, coronavirus. There, are, there were, there were, there have been some machine learning based forecasting tools, which seem to have been very, very accurate. Um, I suppose if you run enough models, you'll find one that's able to call it. Are, are you concerned that in fact policymakers will, uh, rather than uh, relying more on experience and and multiple teams, you know, kind of challenging each other, will just say? What does is, what is, what is the AI say? And that's what they'll go with. So there is a view that we should give as many decisions as possible to algorithms, to AI, because unlike humans, they don't make mistakes in terms of calculations or mathematical reasoning. And that's fine if the only thing you're doing is confronting a problem to which the answer can be obtained by mathematical reasoning. But that is not true of most of the decisions that our political leaders have to take. There are some things for which algorithms are better than humans. For example, if you give scans of possible tumors to a machine, a machine can give you a more accurate response as to whether it is or is not a benign or malign tumor than humans, even experienced doctors, because the machines can be shown far many more examples of tumors and they can learn from that. It's, it's just building on the idea that machines can play chess or go better than humans because they can play many more games than humans ever can. They play them against each other. Now, that's fine up to a point, but that only gives you help with certain kinds of decisions where you can program in in advance all the information that's needed to make an accurate decision. And most of the problems that we face are not only one-offs, they're unique decisions, 
And there is no way in which you can program a computer to resolve that decision. So one of the examples we give in the book is that when President Obama was sitting in the Situation Room, deciding whether or not to send the Navy SEALs in to the compound in Abbottabad to, um, to try to obtain dead or alive Mr. Bin Laden, there were only two possible outcomes, send, send the SEALs in or not, and only two possible outcomes in terms of whether Bin Laden was in the compound or not. He either was or he wasn't. And the people advising him tried to give advice in terms of probabilities, but that just confused the situation. As President Obama said afterwards, what he had to do was to accept that we just didn't know whether it was Bin Laden in the compound or not. He could ask for the information as to why his advisors thought it might be Bin Laden, why other people thought it might not be, but he had to process that information. There is no way that you could put that into a computer and come out with an answer because there are not thousands of previous episodes when people have looked for Bin Ladens in compounds and could supply the information which a computer might be able to process. This was a one-off, a unique decision, and it required judgment, and it required someone's ability to probe and challenge the arguments given by the advisors as to whether, why they thought that it might be Bin Laden. You ask the right questions, you challenge, you challenge the narrative that it's Bin Laden, and then you end up making a decision. And I think there's no way around that for most important decisions that we confront. Some things we can give to computers, we should do that whenever it seems attractive to do it because they can think faster in terms of doing calculations than we as humans can. But here's the rub on all this. If thinking like a computer was so successful and so important, we would have evolved to think like computers, and we didn't. Humans evolved not to think like calculating machines, but to be incredibly good at looking at links between things that don't seem to be connected, but we see a connection to confront something we've never seen before and struggle to find a way to adapt to it. We are very good at coping with the unexpected more than any other species on Earth, which is why we are the most successful species on Earth. But we're not like computers. We should use computers to help us. We are complementary to computers, but computers will never uh, su supersede humans in terms of decision making. As I was reading the book, I kept thinking uh, about the issue of climate change. And there seemed, uh, at least among people who think this is an important issue, that there's a lot of risk involved, I can think of sort of two basic approaches. One is to say, we've come up with some modeling and things look bad, probably. There's a lot of scenarios, but some of them are very bad. So here's what we need to do right now. We need to take radical action right now to reduce carbon emissions that we need to put on uh, uh, carbon taxes, we need to uh, shut down coal plants, we need to radically change our lives because the best modeling says this is very dangerous. Other people might say it indeed might be dangerous, but we really aren't sure of the probabilities of all these outcomes. And if there are sort of low risk, low cost interventions we can take right now, we should do them. But what we should mostly do is make sure that we continue to have a technologically advanced uh, country and world 
with lots of resources so we can adapt to whatever sort of the future holds with climate change. So if it turns out to be worse than we are thinking, we'll have the technology and resources to quickly ramp up clean energy or, or, uh, or try to geoengineer the climate. So one, we sort of do all this preparedness right now and act right now based on the models. Others are to sort of make sure that you can act in the future if you have to. Which way is better if you think of it at all adequately framed decisions? Well, I think this is a difficult judgment to take. And I think it's not related to the value of predictions. So one thing we've learned with COVID-19 is, well, we learned two, two big things, I think, relevant to climate change. One is that survival does actually matter, that you can have as an efficient economy as you like. But if a pandemic comes along that wipes us out, that's of no comfort. So we do need to worry about resilience of the human race, survival. And resilience means that we should not just worry about maximizing our production, minimizing the costs and being as efficient as possible. We should also try and organize our economy in such a way that it's resilient to unexpected outcomes. The second, of course, is that we know that survival is, is risked not just from climate change, but also from many other factors, including pandemics, including bioterrorism. Uh, there are many ways in which the world could come to a rather unfortunate end. And climate change is not the only one. But I think the key point I'd make is that what's been unfortunate about the debate on climate change is that those people who want to take drastic action now are pinning their argument on predictions for which there is an enormous degree of uncertainty. And that is not sensible. The fact that we don't know how the future climate will evolve, and there are certainly room for debate about cause of it and the extent of it, that itself, the fact that there's uncertainty, is not an argument for doing nothing. Indeed, it may well be an argument for saying, since one of the possible outcomes is that the planet comes to a rather sticky end, maybe we should take serious action to prevent that possibility. That's a perfectly good argument. But I think what we need to do is to shift the argument away from these competing predictions as to what will happen when no one really knows what will happen, to actually a decision about how much we are prepared to put our future at risk in different types of ways. And we need to take precautions. We don't want to do it in a way that's so expensive that we destroy our standard of living. But there are difficult balancing acts here. But the judgments about them do not, in my view, depend on which of the predictions you actually believe, because none of the predictions can be held with any degree of certainty. I, I guess my point isn't so much the risk of destroying our standard of living. It's the risk of our ability to respond to unforeseen, unpredictable, certainly unpredictable in the scope and exact nature of the problem that we wanna be able to respond. I, so I, I, I suppose one way of thinking about pandemics is uh, they're very risky and uh, therefore we should try to decentral, we should try to decentralize our economy. High density cities are dangerous. We should, we should encourage people not to live in uh, cities uh, that, I suppose that would be one that would be one, one approach. Of course, well, 
Doing so, that would be bad for economic growth. I mean, we would lose all these agglomeration effects. So I would say that rather than tell people that we should not live in cities anymore, we should do what preparedness we can, masks, ventilators, these kinds of things, but make sure we don't do anything to screw up our ability to continue to advance technologically and be able to deal with future pandemics through therapeutics and vaccines that we don't want to, we don't want to uh, uh, move away. We want to keep pushing that technological frontier and uh, not, and, and, and not, you know, retreat and go the other direction. No, I, I agree with that. And I think that to go back to what you said at the beginning of the question, it is very important to keep our options open. If you're confronted with radical uncertainty, you need to be able to keep options open. And I think one of the lessons from COVID-19 is that, you know, a year ago, the international authorities judged that the US and the UK were countries best prepared for a pandemic. But it turned out we weren't. And in part, that's because we were very well prepared for a pandemic of a particular type, similar to flu. We didn't keep our options open and think about what we might need to do in the event of a pandemic of a different kind altogether. So the question is, if you don't know what the new virus that's going to come along, and the chances are that another pandemic will occur, what, what do we need to do? Well, one thing we need to, there are th at least three things we need to worry about. One is we need to worry about international air travel, because that's the way today in which pandemics uh, it very quickly pass from one country to another. What we do on that, I think, is unclear, but there's plenty of scope for trying to get some international cooperation so that if one country discovers that it has a virus, it is willing to see uh, the travel between it and other countries in the world cease for the time being until they've got on top of it. Otherwise, we're going to start banning all international travel, which is where we've ended up today. The second thing we need to do is that it looks as if some kind of test and trace program is fundamentally important to being able to control the passage of the epidemic until such point as we have a vaccine. And the third thing that we've learned is that we need to be able quickly to expand the number of intensive care beds. We don't quite know what treatments those patients will need, but we do know that a lot of people may need intensive care. Now on that last one, I think actually we were fairly successful in expanding the number of intensive care beds. We did bring in new capacity quite quickly. I think we were less successful at ensuring there were adequate staffing for those new beds, but by and large that bit we got right, but we did not get right the parts to do with test and trace. We weren't prepared for that. Um, and I think we have to think very carefully in, uh, as to what we will want to invest in, in order that we'll be, be better prepared in the future so that we don't have to take the extreme steps of say, saying to people, look, don't live in cities. That would be you know, a very big step backwards for our, for our society if we were to do that. So I think you're right. Keeping options open to me is the key. I think some people reading this book will think this is as persuasive a case as they've ever seen for more minimalist, hands-off government. If there's all this uncertainty and it's difficult to figure out what to do, how can, how can policymakers want to do lots of things which require lots of decisions 
Have you? Do you think you've made a powerful case for I don't know libertarianism? No, I don't think we would. We would say that. Um, I don't think we want to argue that our book justifies any particular system. I think what it does do is to say excessively detailed and complex regulation is likely to be seriously counterproductive. And we give a number of examples from the area of financial regulation. So I think that if government's gonna be successful, keeping it simple is a very important principle. There are, there are issues that governments do need to intervene on. We've seen that you can't combat an epidemic without having an effective government. If you worry about what has been going on in the um, growing inequality in many countries in the West, especially in the US, then that's a government decision as to what to do about it. The, the opioid epidemic, I think, required intervention by decision makers in order to challenge what the drug companies were doing. Uh, they didn't expose it. It took um, individual researchers to expose that. But coping with these problems is actually something which I think only an effective government can do. And perhaps, and this is very topical, looking at it from the outside the United States, it would seem that the first challenge facing whoever becomes the US president is to find a way to bring America together and to reduce this extraordinary divisiveness, which was not present in the United States when I first arrived as a graduate student in 1971 and fell in love with America. But it is present now and it's deeply disturbing. And I think that's a political challenge which can't be solved just by leaving it to people. We've got to find a way on which political leadership can restore the, the way in which, in my generation, political leaders inspired people to come together and work for each other as well as for their country. Um, so I, I don't think I'm, I'm ready yet to give up on political leadership. The book is about uncertainty, but it should be our, our goal as a society to sort of squeeze out all the uncertainty. It's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? Or am I confusing risk and uncertainty? Well, we try to draw a distinction between risk and uncertainty in the book because we, we, we talk about risk being something which is a characteristic of individuals or organizations. That is, they have a, a view as to where their lives are going. And a risk is anything which is a downside outcome relative to that. So, you know, we simple example, the father preparing for the wedding of his daughter. You know, they think things will go properly, but what could go wrong with it? Well, the caterers may fail to turn up, the bridegroom may disappear at the last minute, or it could pour with rain, destroying people's enjoyment of the ceremony. Those are risks. But we stress very much that uncertainty is to be embraced. Uncertainty is the source of everything good in life almost. So when Frank Knight, a century ago, wrote about uncertainty, he saw it in terms of what entrepreneurs could do to create new products that people hadn't imagined before. So that there were things which were being created all the time, which no one knew about and couldn't make bets on, 
uh, and these things were the driving force behind a market economy. They are, the, they are the creations that boost our living standards over time. So from a purely economic point of view, that degree of uncertainty is fundamentally important. But more than that, I, I give you the example of what I find quite often at student graduations, when students will say to me, well, they've enjoyed their, their undergraduate course, now they're launching out into the world, and they're very frightened because they think their future is very uncertain. And I say to them, you should be very happy about that. Because if I could tell you today that here's a list of five jobs that you might be in 20 years from now, and here are the probabilities attached to each of those five, and here are the names of the five people who could be your life partners. And here are the probabilities that you'll end up living with these five people. You go away depressed because you think there's nothing new and exciting in the world. The, the serendipity is the most wonderful thing. You meet people you didn't know. You couldn't imagine people being as wonderful as the ones that you meet. You go to places that you hadn't seen before and didn't imagine. You read, read a book or listen to a piece of music that you hadn't thought about before. These are the things that make life exciting. Uh, they create the enjoyment. They are the spice of life. So uncertainty is fundamentally important to our enjoyment of life, which is why it is, I think, that humans have evolved to be pretty good at coping with uncertainty. We can't predict but we don't want to be able to predict everything that's going to happen to us. Otherwise, we would be bored to tears. So we embrace uncertainty while at the same time taking careful steps to manage the risks that we face. My guest today has been Mervyn King. Mervyn, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. 